You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Father, we thank you for the wonderful and matchless name of Jesus. He is holy and he is righteous. His name is above all names. And by his name alone, we have salvation. Thank you that by faith in his name, we are healed, we are forgiven, we are saved, and we are reunited into relationship with the invisible, sovereign creator, God, who hears our prayers. This is who you are, and your son is holy. We give thanks for him, and we are glad that we can pray to you, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, join me in opening your Bible up to Hebrews chapter 13. Little error in your sermon notes today. It's Hebrews 13, not Hebrews 3. Hebrews 13, verse 15 and verse 16. My wife and I really like board games, and there's one I haven't played since a child, though. Really liked it as a child because of the dial that I kept to be able to spin, even when it wasn't my turn to spin it. Uh, it's that board game called The Game of Life. wonder if you've ever played it before. Lots of fun. Goal of the game, uh, retire rich. That's the goal of the game, right? It's like other board games where you have like uh, a thing that counts your movements and you spin most games have a die that you roll, but this is a dial that you spin, and then you move your little person, different steps, and you want to decide, do I go to college or not go to college? And then do I, uh, what kind of career do I want? And what kind of house do I want to buy? And uh, do I want a spouse and kids? And then the rest of the game is just collecting paydays, avoiding taxes and chaos, and then whoever accumulates the most money at the end gets to go to the rich, wealthy mansion, and if you don't hit a certain amount, you go into like Shady Manor or whatever that place is called if you don't have enough. And I liked that game a lot. I was one of the kids who would like spin the dial even when it wasn't my turn and it was fun. But, you know, it became pretty evident if you play that game, it can become pretty evident pretty soon into the game who's actually going to win, right? You can get halfway through the game and see who's like, all right, that guy's got like all the money, the best job, the highest paycheck. This is not even worth it. And sometimes it felt like I just want to quit. And sometimes I've played board games before with loved ones where we, one of us has done what kids call rage quitting, where it's just, I'm done, throw the remote, flip the table, shedding tears, we're not talking. And that can happen sometimes. But, you know, I wonder if uh, in a way, the North American church can default to playing the game of church in the same way that you might play the board game, the game of life. The goal of the game of life, just collect all the right cards, stack your hands with the best things that can make you the most money and live the most comfortably and retire. And the game of church is kind of the same way. I just want to stack my hand and make my life personally beneficial. I, I, I just come to church because I want my peace of mind. I, I just come to church because uh, I want to have a sense of belonging. I come to church because I just don't want to have shame and I want to be free from this guilty conscience. Uh, I just want to stack the deck in my favor and that's what I'm really here for. And then, you know, I just want to coast through life peacefully, peacefully, quietly, and then just punch my ticket to heaven. But what if these were the cards that we weren't dealt? 
What if instead of the ease of a peaceful and quiet life like most of the North American church has, what if we got what most of the developing world church has? Instead of peace and quiet, we get religious discrimination. Or instead of a sense of belonging, we get socially shunned because of our faith. Would we still have the same commitment to come to church? Would we still have the same commitment to worship the name of Jesus? Would we still have the commitment to love our neighbors even though they hated us and treated us like enemies? This was the place where the church who received this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, that's where they were. They were being discriminated because of their faith. It says that they were actually being, in another passage, plundered. Their possessions were being plundered by their neighbors. They were being socially ostracized. And they were asking the question, is this worth it? You know, people are doing this to us because we left following Moses because we believed that Jesus fulfilled everything that Moses taught. But is it just easier just to go back and follow Moses? And the whole letter of Hebrews was written so that they would know that Jesus is greater and fulfills everything the Old Testament taught. So it's worth it to still worship the name of Jesus. It's worth it to still show acts of love and kindness to your neighbors in the name of Jesus. In the past couple weeks, we've been learning about what it means to be a community on purpose, to practice real fellowship. And today, we're going to learn what it means that even if you've been dealt the cards that you don't want to play, and you'd rather fold or you'd rather rage quit, you can still worship God in a way that pleases him. Real fellowship practices genuine worship in a way that pleases God, even if you're dealt a hand that you don't want to play. This is the idea of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16. Real fellowship practices genuine worship in a way that pleases God. And we're going to learn from this text the two ways that genuine worship will be expressed when we live by it in real fellowship, despite the cards that we're dealt in our daily lives. So as we do, would you stand with me so we can honor the Lord as we read his word together? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You can take your seats. Real fellowship practices genuine worship in a way that pleases God, no matter what hand you've been dealt so let's look and see what are these practices? What is genuine worship? How is it expressed? Well, verse 15 tells us the first way. Genuine worship is expressed by ongoing praise for God. Genuine worship is expressed by ongoing praise for God. Through him, that's through Jesus, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. You know what this tells me? 
It's not a duty or a routine to worship God. It's not a duty or a routine. It's a privilege and it's a delight to sing songs of praise together in real fellowship with other Christians. Is it like that for you? Now, I've met some of my neighbors who attend more traditional churches who are very ritualistic in their weekly services. And when I talk with them about the way they think about their faith, it's like those who are in it are just like, who really practice it with their heart. They're just like extreme, and, but they do it kind of just out of duty, you know? Stand up now. Kneel down now. Stand up again. Sit down now. Recite this chant. Pray this prayer. It very, feels very ritualistic. Is that the way that you feel about worship? It's just a duty. It's just a routine. I got to take out my garbage. I got to buy groceries. I got to go to church. This passage tells me that that worship, praising God, celebrating him in song, and speaking about his excellent nature is not a duty and a routine. It's a privilege and a delight. Is it for you? How does this passage say that it's a privilege and a delight? Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Do you know the unique privilege that you have to worship God? You can worship God in relationship with the invisible, unseen creator of the universe who made all visible, seen things through Jesus. The letter to the Hebrews was written to a Jewish people who were, as I said, thinking maybe we should go back to Judaism and stop following Jesus because of this persecution we're experiencing. But the letter was written to show that now Jesus is greater and fulfills everything that Moses taught, everything the prophets taught in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills it. Jesus is greater than it. Jesus is the greater sacrificial lamb who offered his life once for all. Jesus is the high priest who's greater than Aaron. Jesus is the better prophet who's greater than Moses. Jesus is greater. Jesus fulfills all the law. So because Jesus fulfilled everything God required of us, we can access a relationship with God not based on our own merit, not based on our own works, but based on Christ's. Through him, you can know the nearness of God being as close to you and closer than your skin is to your own body. You can know that God is that close to your soul. There is one true living God, and we have access through, to him through Christ. The Gospel of John makes a similar argument that we can only have a relationship through Jesus. But instead of arguing that idea to a specific group of people, Jewish people, the Gospel of John makes that argument to all people. And it makes claims like this in John 14, verse 6. In John 14, verse 6, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is one true living God, the one revealed in the Christian scriptures, the Father who created all things by the word of his power, the Son who saves us from our sin, the Spirit who gives us life. There is one true living God, and to know Him, to worship Him, to be transformed by Him is available only through Jesus. 
through him, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. Do you know the privilege it is to worship God? We all deserve to be alienated from a holy God because of the innate wickedness that each human being is born with. We don't deserve to know God. We don't deserve to worship God. But it's a privilege to worship God. Jesus, Jesus willingly chose us even though we were alienated from him. We weren't seeking after him. He sought after us. We have this privilege even though we were alienated. We have this privilege because God mercifully chose us even though we were unworthy. We have this privilege because Jesus willingly, lovingly, mercifully chose to suffer the consequences of our wicked sin when he died on the cross. He willingly suffered for our sins so that we could be saved from our sins and reunited into a relationship with God. And in Christ, through him, we see that he is more glorious and he is more worthy and he is more excellent than any other one. The one true living God is alone worthy of our praise. To have a relationship with God is in its finite, most simplest meaning is to know that he is God and I am not. That he is greater and I am lesser. So because I know his greatness, I will celebrate his greatness. Is that like that for you? We all probably have that friend who's really hard to shut up about that thing that they really like to talk about, right? Maybe that's you. Maybe, and if you don't have that friend, you're probably that friend, right? You know, there are some people who are just like, whenever they get a chance, even if the conversation doesn't merit it, they're talking about politics, right? Man, I hate this guy. He does so many bad things. He's like, girl, he's such a hypocrite. And all they want to talk about all the time. Or, or some other people, it's like, all they want to talk about is their dog. And it's like, hey, I bought this new feeding bowl for my dog. That's nice. Great. Cool. Good. There's a new trail where I can go walk with my dog. Okay, cool. I don't, I don't have a dog. I'm glad you enjoy that. Do you want to go run with a dog? No, I don't run. I'm glad you run with your dog. Or some people, maybe all they just want to talk about is, is fitness. You're just like, ah, oh, I got a good swell at the gym today. You go to the gym? Like, no. No, I do, no, I do not go to the gym. <laughs> You know, Christians who get the privilege of worshiping God, they're kind of really hard to shut up like that. Christians who get the privilege of worshiping God, hey, they're really glad at any moment to talk about how great God is. They're really glad to talk about the way that they see God's grace in their life because they know the privilege that it is. It's a privilege to worship God. Not only a privilege, but it's a delight to worship God. It's not a duty to worship God. This passage tells us about the amazing ways that we have to ongoing, in an ongoing manner, worship God. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, not just on Sundays, but daily, continually. What reason can you worship God today despite the hand that you've been dealt. Well, the context of this passage tells us three ways, no matter what your circumstances, that you can worship God today. I want to show you these ways. Look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led astray away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. See, these people were being led astray, led away by strange teachings. But the writer was telling them, listen, you have the gift of God, of the right teaching, of the correct teaching, of the scriptures which are taught to you on a regular basis. And when you submit yourself to the teaching of God's word, you are strengthened in your heart with grace. In the same way that your body is strengthened with the nourishment of food, the teaching of God's word is nourishment for your soul to be strengthened by grace to stand firm. You can, give, you can continually praise God for the grace of his word. Look at verse 10 to 12. It talks about another way we can praise. It says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The writer is saying that once the way that you were forgiven of your sins was through the sacrifice of an animal and its blood being spilt, it took your punishment. But one animal wasn't enough. They needed to offer animal day by day, year by year. But Jesus, when he suffered, he suffered once for all. His suffering was final. He took the punishment that you deserved. And by faith in him, you're cleansed by his blood. We can continually praise God for Christ's cleansing sacrifice. I don't know what baggage you brought into church today. I don't know what shame is bearing down on your shoulders. I don't know what guilt you feel that makes you feel like your soul is stained and dirty. But I do know that Christ's blood is enough to wash away the guilt of your sin. So that, and when you believe in him, you can know that the Father in heaven looks on you with the same loving eyes that he looks on his own perfect beloved son, Jesus Christ. We can continually praise God for the grace of his word, for Christ's cleansing sacrifice, and we can also continually praise God for the hope of eternal life. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 13 says, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Yeah, you're going to be discriminated. You're going to suffer persecution. Go do it like Jesus. Why? Verse 14, for here in this life, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. My wife and I just bought a home by God's grace, and we're glad that we have this place that we can live and raise our family in a neighborhood where we can talk about Jesus and build equitable relationships with others. But hey, this, 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 this home isn't my lasting home. My lasting home is the home that Jesus is preparing for me in the Father's kingdom. Jesus said in John 14, 1, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will return so that I might take you to be where, where I am so that you might be with me always. Listen, you can, you can take shunning by others. You can take discrimination by others because this place isn't our home. We're waiting a better one. I don't know what cards you've been dealt. I don't know what it might feel like 
but I know you have reason to praise because of the privilege it is to worship God, because of the delight that it is for the reasons we have, his word, his sacrifice, and hope in him. But what if you're not praising him today? What if instead of having a delight, it feels like a duty? What if you don't feel like you have hope? What if your heart is hard towards God? What can you do? Well, this is a sermon about fellowship, right? This was the circumstances of the people who received this letter. And the writer told them what they should do if they were hard in their heart, falling away from God. Hebrews 13 verse 12, excuse me, Hebrews 3 verse 12 says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The antidote to a hard heart is the kindness of fellowship. We need to take care of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be aware and observe their heart. Are the people in my small group, do they have joy in the Lord? And I need to ask them in a way that author Paul Tripp says is intentionally intrusive. Brother, do you have joy in the Lord? Sister, are you glad in the Lord today? And if they're not, and if they have an unbelieving heart and they're falling away and their heart is hard, what we need to do is encourage them. Encourage them with the knowledge of the privilege of our relationship with God. Encourage them with the knowledge of the delight and the reasons we have to give thanks for God today. If you see someone, don't leave them by themselves. Bring them into the light so that it might melt the cold ice heart. And if you feel like you are heart is cold as ice, then step into the light of fellowship and allow others to speak truth into yourself. Real fellowship can help preserve this type of genuine worship in God. Genuine worship is expressed by ongoing praise for God. Do you have it? If you don't, step into the light. And if you see that someone doesn't, invite them into the light. But genuine worship isn't just the words we say. It's also the works that we perform that are an offering of sacrifice of praise to God. Look at verse 16 and we'll see the second way that genuine worship is expressed. Verse 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Genuine worship is expressed by ongoing praise for God, but genuine worship is also expressed, and I would say genuine worship isn't fully complete unless we're also extending love to others. Genuine worship is expressed by, uh, by extending love to others. See this word share in verse 16? Can you turn your eyes to the scriptures and look at it with me? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Doing good, is, or excuse me, sharing what we have is the good that we can do. And in the, Paul, or the original language of the author, share is the word that we get in other texts that is fellowship. Do not neglect to do good and to fellowship with what you have. Remember, fellowship is three things. 
sharing a life together that's expressed through common relationships, common resolve, determination to fulfill the mission of making disciples, and common, sharing common resources for each other's welfare. Fellowship is sharing common relationships, caring, sharing common resolve, and sharing common resources for each other's welfare. And the last aspect, sharing common resources, is what is in view in this text. We should share the resources that we have for the welfare of others. And notice that it says, do not neglect to do good. Why, why say do not neglect? Why not just say, do good and share what you have? Well, probably because this church was neglecting it. And I wonder, are we? Good question, though. Who should we share what we have with, right? If we're not to neglect doing good and share what we have, who should I share what I have with? Well, I think this passage has in mind two definite groups, but there's a third one that applies as well. We can see the two definite groups in verse 1 and verse 2. Can you look at that passage with me, chapter 13, verse 1 and 2? It says... Let brotherly love continue. First group, we can show genuine worship by extending love to those in need at our local church. Brothers, sisters, those in the family of faith in our local congregation. You know, the elders get requests on occasionally for a benevolence, people who are in financial need and they are in need of assistance because of circumstances beyond their control. And we're glad to be able to have a budget from the giving of the church to be able to help support those. But one of the things we ask when someone asks for a benevolence request is, number one, can their family support them? Because First Timothy says, if you can't support your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And two, we ask, can their small group support them? Because Romans chapter 12 says that we should be zealous to contribute to the needs of the saints. And we're glad if those circumstances aren't available to be able to help other people. So I would ask you, are you do you have an open hand to the family of faith? Are you ready to help someone that you see in need rather than saying, no, nah, this, is, this, is, this is mine? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Let brotherly love continue. What's the second group? Verse 2 tells us, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, hospitality to strangers might sound it's like, like it's the guy that I see every day when I'm walking downtown after my commute, who's holding a sign and asking for money. We should share what we have with those people, but that's not the people that are in view here. The strangers are in, that are in view here are kind of explained by the next statement, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The writer is reminding them of a story in the book of Genesis, where Abraham uh, made a meal for two messengers who came to share him a message. But Abraham didn't know that these messengers were actually angelic beings sent by God to send him a message. And he, they were strangers, he, people he didn't know, who came with a message from God, and wow, he, he actually gave a meal to some angels. In 3 John chapter 5-8, to 8, we see kind of similar language, but it's not talked about angels, it's talked about missionaries. People who have left from another church and are going around into other cities telling people about the gospel. 3 John, verse 5 to 8, the apostle John thanks the church for supporting people that they've never met before, who've claimed to be Christians, who are going about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. They're missionaries. 
And that's really who's in view here when the passage says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. We should do good and share what we have with those who have a special calling from God to go about and share the good news of Jesus across the world. And that's why our church supports Pastor Adi Balta in Timisoara, Romania. That's why our church supports Pastor Marvin Makudi, who's uh, planted a church in Yorkdale. We want to do good and share what we have with these people. Yet there's a third group that's also applied in this text that I think we need to be conscious as well, that we can't neglect showing, doing good to these as well. Yes, we need to extend love to those in need at our local church. Yes, we need to extend love to those who are called to the work of missions. But also, we need to show a, a genuine worship by extending love to vulnerable people who are outside our church. I mean, those people who really struggle to take care of themselves. I mean, those people who aren't a part of the family of faith. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, As we have the opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. Especially does not mean exclusively. And God, God has a real heart for vulnerable people. James 1, verse 27 says, Pure religion that is undefiled is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, when you genuinely love your Father in heaven, you will genuinely love what and who your Father loves. I kind of see this in my own family, actually. We got a three-month-old who doesn't do much other than kick and cry and scream, and a 20-month-old who's we're really starting to develop a real relationship with. And what I'm starting to see is that my 20-month-old daughter is, sees that she is loved by us and is starting to love the things that we love. Every summer, pretty much since I've been in grade nine, give or take, missing one or two summers, I've made a summer playlist. Songs that I want to listen to, the same songs that are just like nice and upbeat, summer fun songs, and I can listen to them in my car, I can listen to them when I go out on a run. And I wasn't sure what I was going to listen to this summer, um, but I decided I wanted to listen to some classic um, 80s and 90s rock, or pop rock, I guess you could say. So uh, Phil Collins became kind of my hits for the summer. And uh, then also um, this other song that my daughter started catching on to as well. And uh, also in the summer for my birthday, I was given a Google Home smart speaker. And you know, these are the speakers that are connected to the internet and they get cued when you give, say a trigger word and can respond to your requests. So I'll say like, hey Google, what's the weather? Or I'll say, hey Google, play Phil Collins. And my daughter hears me say this, and she's starting to like some of the songs that I like. And just yesterday, she looked at me and said, mm, Daddy, hey, hey Google, play Africa by Toto. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my wife, though, is a little more mature than I. And I see my daughter um, starting to love the things that my wife loves. And my wife in the mornings, after my kids wake up and she feeds them breakfast, 
just opens up the Bible and reads like one or two verses and then prays with our kids. And right now my daughter is mimicking what my wife does. So she folds her hands, she closes her eyes when she prays, and then she says amen very loudly after praying very quietly. And the other day, though, um, we see my, my wife did this with my daughter, and then my wife went into another room to, like, prepare a meal or something like that. And usually when my wife has done something like those, doing those things, she would go, my daughter would go and, I don't know, read books. She likes doing that or, or play with her toys. Or, but this time my wife came back and my daughter was still there. She doesn't have good dexterity in her hands or fine motor skills, so she's just flipping through my wife's Bible like this. And then my wife watches and then by herself without being cued by my, uh, her mom, my daughter folds her hands and says, Amen. <laughs> and it's cute. It's, it's funny. And uh, she's just mimicking us right now. And we are praying that there would be a day soon when her faith would not just be mimicking mom and dad, but it would be her faith. And we are praying that she would be a woman of prayer. But what we do see now is that our daughter knows that she's loved by mom and dad. And we know that she loves us. And because of that, she loves what we love. If you genuinely love your father in heaven, you will genuinely love what your father loves and who your father loves. I'm excited about these new initiatives that we have in our small group this year. I'm excited about the things we've already been doing to, as a church, share what we have. We support ministries. We have benevolence funds. I'm excited for our small groups to start doing the open house initiatives and the serving activities. I'm excited for weekends when our small groups suspend the normal meeting of getting together and doing Bible discussion and accountability in a home, and they go out and partner with one of our compassion ministry partners to serve care packages to the homeless, and to go build relationships with widows at retirement homes. I'm excited for our homes to, our small groups to open up to their doors to their neighbors, and for small group members to invite their unsaved friends into their small group so that they can experience Christian community and hear about the good news of Jesus. But I get some reservations people have about it. I get that you feel like it's a time constraint to go and serve. I get that you feel that it's awkward or fearful even, to invite strangers into your home. That might be what you feel about it. What does your Father in heaven feel about it? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Yes, it's fearful. Yes, it's a time constraint. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it pleases God. And isn't that what we want to do? To live lives that don't please ourselves, that please our Father in heaven. Let's ask the opposite question, though. If this is how God feels about it when we do it, how does God feel when we neglect to do good and to share what we have? Author Kelly Capick answers that question. He wrote a book called A Little Book for New Theologians, and he says this. The quote is on the screen. To love God, to know God is to love God, which results in the transference of his interests and concerns to us. When God's people lose this concern, God declares their theological talk and religious services 
empty, even offensive. God judges our theology faithful or false by our attitudes and responses to those in need. Neglect of love for our neighbor confines theology to a pursuit of personal peace, self-improvement, and detached spirituality. God equates this with adultery. Um, ouch. You can know this book cover to cover. You can all argue atheists and prosperity gospel false teachers under the table. You can have all of your right belief in order and be committing adultery in, rela in your relationship with God if you pass over people in need whom you know you could care for. I could. God forbid that we would. Genuine worship isn't just knowing the right things and singing the songs loudly. Genuine worship isn't complete until it's fully expressed through ongoing praise for God and by extending love to others. So I would ask you, church, the same question I'm asking myself. Are we practicing real fellowship and genuine worship? Or are we just playing the game of church? I'm just here to collect my cards and I don't care if you know it. I just want my sense of belonging. I just want my um, self-improvement. I just want my peace of mind. I just want to have r numb my guilty conscience. I just want a peaceful and quiet life. That's why I'm here at church. What if you got a different hand dealt? One of the pastors in our network, the Great Commission, Network, Connect, Great Commission uh, Collective, I know how to speak. That's my job, right? <laughs> One of the pastors in our network called the Great Commission Collective got a different response when his dad heard that he was saved. The pastor's from Nepal. How does his dad respond when his kid got saved. You know, his dad did the most loving and gracious and supportive and celebrating thing when he heard his son got saved by throwing boiling water on his son. In many places across the world, choosing to be baptized for the name of Jesus might, might be a choice to know that you could lose your head. In many places across the world, a peaceful and quiet life isn't possible because there's state-sponsored discrimination against Christians. But they still come to worship. And they still do good to others who hate them. If that happened in North America, what would happen to your offering gift to the church? Would you still give? If that happened, would you still publicly come and praise the name of Jesus knowing that you could go to jail for the name of Jesus? Would you still love your enemy even though you know your enemy might rat you out to the police? Would I? And the answer is, I don't know. But I know that there's one motivation, only one motivation, that would actually compel me to do it. I could only be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus because I know Jesus suffered for me. I could only willing, be willing to love my enemies because Jesus loved me 
when I was his enemy. I could only worship his name because I know he is the name that is above all names. I think it's time to stop playing the game of church, don't you? Let's join in to genuine worship. Let's join in to genuine worship that gives thanks to God for all he's done and does good to others in a way that pleases God. Would you stand with me now as we sing? Father in heaven, thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you've shown so much good to us in the gospel. We were unworthy, wicked sinners, but you saved us. Lord, help us to show love to others in the way that you have loved us. Help us to really worship in a way that is really committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to see that we have a reason to praise you every day and that it's not a routine and a duty. Help us to see that it's a privilege and it's a delight. And help us to recognize that praising you is way better than talking about any other thing. And help us, Lord God, to love the people that you love. Help me, God, to love the people that you love. Even if we're not dealt the hand that we want, help us to pick up our cross and to follow you in genuine worship. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.